0: If you would turn in your bibles to first samuel chapter 17 uh, when matt asked me to preach uh this summer i looked kind of where you guys had been hanging out and it looks like for some of it you'd been in some old testament narr- narrative uh, with ruth and so i was like how appropriate it would be to maybe reflect on first samuel 17 um So whether you're a Christian or not, um, you're more than likely familiar with this story. It's the epic tale of David and Goliath. And we'll make our way through this very long passage. It's actually the longest chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. But first, let me just remind ourselves where we're at in the story. The first half of 1 Samuel, it describes a transition period for Israel They wanted a king like all the other nations, and God gave them what they wanted. He gave them Saul. But behind the scenes, we see him setting up a king after his own heart, um, Jesse's son, David. And 1 Samuel chapter 17 is, is like David's public debut. He comes on to the stage. So look at verse 1. The author gives us the setting in the first 11 chapters. It says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. In the Valley of Elah, it was a strategic location for both Israel and Philistia. Philistia bordered Israel on the west and stood between them and the Mediterranean Sea. So the two armies are gathered here together on Israelite territory in what is really the entrance into the hill country of Judah. And if the Philistines win this battle, they essentially get handed house keys to Saul's kingdom. So it's a big deal. But this isn't the only reason that this scene is so intense. Not only would defeat in this battle threaten the security of the Israelite kingdom, they are totally outgunned. So look at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, which literally means a man in the space between two armies, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, which means about nine and a half feet tall. Big guy. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. The length at which the author goes to describe Goliath is noteworthy. He wants us to just feel totally awestruck at this person. (laughs) And he wants us to feel just how impossible and invincible this giant really is. And Goliath, he not only looks terrifying, he has a message for Israel that makes them tremble too. So look at verse 10. It says, And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid." So first, the word Goliath uses in verse 10, defy, is a word we need to pay attention to. It's, it's a word that occurs five times in chapter 17, and it really drives the whole text. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But second, it makes sense that Israel is terrified. Goliath is scary. And if we make it this far in our Bible reading plans to first Samuel 17. We're well acquainted with the people of Israel at this point. They don't have eyes to see through Goliath and his threats. The eyes that saw the glory of the nations in Saul see the terror of inevitable defeat in the height of Goliath. And look at Saul's response. He's the king and the one person who should have responded to Goliath's contempt for God's people in God's name. And instead, where is he? He's hiding among his people. So we're supposed to see ourselves, as we read through this chapter, in the ranks of Israel and in Saul himself. We don't trust that God is bigger than our biggest problems. And so the question we'll ask today is, what do we need to face our biggest problems? What do we need to face our biggest problems? Problems, And I think that our text has two answers for us. So first, we need to see ourselves in God's eyes. Second, we need to see our problems in God's world. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we, we have your book open before us, your words to us. And I was just reflecting on... Um, words from the Gospel of John and how you are our good shepherd. We are your sheep. And we hear your voice. We know your voice. You know us by name. And, uh, yeah, just pray that we would experience you as a good shepherd who cares for us and, and leads us in and out of pasture and provides what we need and and comforts us with your presence and care. Uh, would you do that by your spirit this morning, right here, right now? Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. So yeah, this first point, we need to see ourselves in God's eyes. So look with me at verse 12. It says, Now David was the son of an Eph- Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. Uh, Verse 14, David was the youngest or the smallest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So by chapter 17 in the book of Samuel, Jesse, David's father, he's old, he's exempt from battle, and so his three oldest sons go to war on his behalf. And we're reminded that David is still this small shepherd and he's the youngest of Jesse's sons. And the reason he went back and forth from his shepherding duties to the battle is that he's also Saul's armor bearer. And when David isn't doing the menial task of of shepherding dirty stinky sheep for his dad, he's Jesse's errand boy and so he's taking sack lunches to his brothers at the battle and um and so he goes on a familiar trip. We find him on a familiar trip. What he, what he doesn't know is that this particular trip will change his life forever. He leaves a shepherd, and he ends up a savior of God's people. And so David goes on the trip, and he, as he arrives in the valley, the two armies are coming together um, like normal. And look with me at verse 22. It says, And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. So this isn't the first time we hear about baggage in the book of Samuel, and not the kind of baggage that your mom gives you. Um, In chapter 10, that was a counseling joke, you guys are supposed to laugh at that. In chapter 10, we find Saul hiding, like he's doing now, among the baggage, But David isn't hiding, is he? He he leaves the provisions he'd brought with the keeper of the baggage and rushes to meet his brothers at the line of battle. I think we're supposed to notice just the stark difference between Saul and David. And as David talks to his brothers, Goliath, you know, he comes out on cue. He gives his speech, and Israel again flees um, from the giant. So look at verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And there's that word again, defy. But this time David hears him and something inside of him awakens to Goliath's taunts. And this is the first time we actually hear David's voice in the Bible. A person's first words in the Bible say a lot about who they are. So look at verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God, Again, we hear that word, defy, twice here. The word reproach in verse 26, it's the same word for defy in the Hebrew. So while Saul and the rest of Israel are are concerned with their own safety, what is David's, David's concern? It's not for himself. It's not just Israel. He wants to take away Israel's reproach, their shame, yes, but mainly because Goliath, in defying Israel is defying God himself. And I'm sure he sounded a lot like a king. In David's speech, it must have earned some attention from the soldiers because his brother, his older brother Eliab, comes up, takes notice. So look at verse 28. Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep? in the wilderness. Those few sheep in the wilderness burn. What is Eliab doing? He's just mocking David. He's trying to make his smaller, younger brother feel small. Don't you know your place? Who do you think you are? Go back to your sheep where you belong So sometimes people see faith or gifts in others and it makes them feel insecure and small. And so they will do whatever they can to feel big again. However, his brother's mocking, it's not enough to calm down the crowd's excitement. Word gets out that there's someone willing, finally, to face Goliath. And it gets all the way up to King Saul. So look at verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Man, David just cannot get a break. First his brother, and now his king. It seems that no one believes in this small shepherd. We see in this epic tale that Goliath isn't the only giant that David has to face. He has to face the unbelief and dismay of the Israelite people, the mockery of his own family, and the cowardice of his king. No one believes in him, and yet he's still so sure that he's the man for the job. How is that? Look at verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep. For his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you, which in Hebrew means good luck. Not really. So David sees himself in the eyes, uh, not in the eyes of his fellow Israelites or his family or even his king. David sees himself in the eyes of his Lord. And while his brother used his vocation as a shepherd to shame him, David sees that that very calling is the thing that now qualifies him to meet meet Goliath. David saw himself, his story, even the parts that seemed confusing or trivial through God's eyes. So yes, he was a shepherd in some backwater town that no one gave a rip about. But in those hidden years of David's life, God was preparing for himself a king who would have his heart. The hill country around Bethlehem, it was David's gymnasium of faith, where his trust in God grew as the Lord delivered him from bears and from lions. So it's not like David was a shepherd one day and then laid down that part of himself and became the king of Israel. No, he was the kind of king that Israel needed because he was a shepherd. And I think that the Lord does this in your life too. I wonder what stories you have. Every time that I sit down with someone who's hurting and feels semi-qualified <laughs> to enter into that space, I think about where I was given those gifts of care. In some of the most confusing years of my life, following my parents' divorce, my mom, she, I love my mom, but she would look to me as her counselor. And so seven-year-old Victor, you know, he grew up fast. He developed those helping skills in the furnace of a pretty chaotic home that needed some store, sort of stability. And for so long after becoming a Christian, I, God and I had some words about those years of my life. I was really confused about why he'd allowed those years to happen but I think in hindsight, like, I, I realized that that house was the gymnasium of my faith. It fine-tuned in me skills that I use every single day now. So somehow the Lord turned what was confusing, lonely, tw- and twisted it into something that now brings life to others. He's that kind of God. And so is there a, a previous season in your life that confuses you like that? that leaves you wondering, man, why did I go through that? What was the meaning of it? Maybe you're there now. A time that seems so out of place, so meaningless, fruitless, like tending sheep when no one's watching. The Lord, he's just so creative, Uh, more creative than you could ever imagine. He's a good storyteller, He wastes nothing. Every menial service you've rendered, even the times where it felt like evil had won the day, it will serve an ultimate purpose in God's upside-down kingdom. Do you have eyes to see? So what do we need to face our biggest problems? We need to see ourselves, our story in God's eyes. And lastly, we need to see our problems in God's world. So look at verse 38. Saul puts his armor on David, probably not to protect him, but because if by some small chance he actually defeats Goliath, the the victory can be attributed to him. But the armor, it's too big, it's too clunky. David's never worn a warrior's armor, so he takes them off, and he approaches the giant completely completely, vulnerable, and with only his good looks and a bag of rocks at his disposal. (laughs) So Goliath, he must have felt offended. He must have felt offended. So he says in verse 3, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? David must see something that we can't. So look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear And with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So there it is. This whole time, Israel was afraid of Goliath because they believed there was no one among them, not even their king, who could defeat the the Philistine champion. But David, he sees things differently. To him, Goliath is just an uncircumcised Philistine. What if you guys, and what if we got into a fight and that was like the name that you called me? I would laugh at your face. Um, But he's just this uncircumcised Philistine, someone who has foolishly defied the name of the Lord. So as God's representative, David is determined to help them see, to restore a right view of reality, both in his people, Israel, and in the surrounding nations. And he makes his determination in defeating Goliath very clear. So look at verse 6. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the duel, it moves quickly at this point. The battle's almost over as soon as it begins. And we all know it so well, right? David and Goliath rush towards one another. David takes a stone from his shepherd's pouch and he slings it at the giant and he falls down dead. In verse 50, the text makes sure to remind us that there wasn't a sword in David's hand. David finishes the job with Goliath's own sword. And the Philistines flee. The Israelite army chases them as far as Goliath's hometown, Gath. And then they return to plunder the um, Philistine camp. So the rest of chapter 17, it foreshadows the events of really the rest of 1 Samuel um, that focuses on the envy that Saul has for David. Because I'm sure that as Saul watched David in his zeal and his faith, he became jealous of this shepherd boy and the the popularity he started to build among the israelite people and so he asks where david is from and whose family he belongs to i'm sure that he felt threatened by him a little bit but wow what an unexpected turn of events david's life as a shepherd it not only prepared him to be a king over israel but it shaped the way david saw god in the midst of his problems his biggest problems And we read poetry and prayer uh, penned by David in Psalm 23, which is also, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I, I just, I wonder, do you think David was praying this as he prepared to meet Goliath? Notice how David sees just an enchanted world alive with the presence of God. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... You know, he feels the grasp of the battlefield beneath his feet. He makes me lie down in green pastures. David kneels beside the brook to pick out five smooth stones. The coolness of the water rushes over his hand. He leads me beside still waters. He carries on his soul the mockery of his brother, the faithlessness of his king, The way Goliath has defied the name of his God, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He walks from the Israelite ranks through the valley of Elah. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. He has his shepherd's staff in his hand. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He meets Goliath face to face. His enemy taunts him. It tries to feed him lies about who he is, what's going to happen. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies." It takes practice to look at the world and to see it alive with the presence of God, doesn't it? It doesn't take much effort to bring to mind our failures, our weakness, our smallness in the midst of a very, very broken world. I mean, I can do that for myself and for you on autopilot. And it's easy to get to this point where we feel ready to quit. We're hopeless, you know, we're we're resigned. How could God rule this world with the way it is? But I think sometimes God's salvation, his mercy, his His providence breaks into our lives in the most simple yet unexpected of ways. Do you have eyes to see that? I just imagine the way David looked standing in front of Goliath. It must have felt similar to the way Jesus did as he hung on the cross to those who passed by, right? Like hopeless, small, weak, his enemies mocking him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. But Christ saw himself in his father's eyes and trusted that he would rise from the dead. And Jesus, and eventually his faltering disciples, saw the cross in the context of God's world. And in doing so, where some saw a criminal, a silenced religious zealot hanging on an instrument of torture, with eyes of faith, we see it as the place, the place where God crushed the head of the serpent and disarmed the powers of death and sin that had held humanity, held us in its grip for so long. Death and sin, our biggest problem, destroyed by a Jewish man hanging on a wooden cross. Something so small, weak, ordinary, impossible, unless you have eyes to see. So do you have eyes to see yourself the way the Lord sees you? Do you have eyes to see your sin and shortcomings, your enemies and their taunts, your biggest problems in a world where God is alive, is alive and active, where he's your shepherd who laid down his life for you? This hope is yours and mine in him today. Let me pray. Thank you that It's true, Lord, you are living and active in our lives, in our world, and you write a good story. You weave our worst moments, the things that we would never share, never bring to the light, the things that we're ashamed of, you even use that somehow um, into a tapestry of redemption you make us instruments of reconciliation. We hold the treasure of the gospel in clay jars. <laughs> Ordinary lives um, that you love, that you died for. And so Lord, be um, yeah, be with us just as we prepare our hearts to commune with you at the table. Um, we just give you praise for your goodness, for your protection, for your shepherding us. You're a king, um, but you're the kind of king that, that knows us, loves us, died for us. So we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.